0: Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Epistle to the Hebrews. We'll be discussing how Jesus Christ is superior to Moses, falling away from faith, perseverance of the faith, and eternal security. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 3, we'll begin our lesson. I'll open us in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, thank you so much for this day and for the ability of all of us to gather together, as well as those on the phone who are able to join us and those that will listen to this podcast later. We're so thankful for your word and as we continue our study of Hebrews and dig into just how awesome Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for us and how Jesus' ministry is superior to everyone else's ministry and the amazing things that he has done by his grace to save us. We're just so thankful for all your blessings. And I ask that you speak through me this morning, lead our discussion, open our hearts to hear what we need to hear, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we'll pick up where we left off. We're in the book of Hebrews. We're in the third chapter. And where we left off last time, the writer of Hebrews—remember, we don't really know who wrote Hebrews, so I'll refer to the writer as just the writer of the Hebrews—where we left off, the writer of the Hebrews was explaining how Jesus is superior even to the angels. And so now what we're going to see in the next several chapters, a writer is going to keep comparing Jesus to others. In this chapter, we're going to see he's going to spend a lot of time talking about Moses because Moses was held in such high regard with the Jews. So we'll see that as we get started. I'll pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession let me stop here. There's a lot even in this first sentence. He says, therefore, holy brethren. So he's talking to Christians, Jewish Christians here. And he's saying that they're holy. So they're sanctified. They're set apart. They're made holy because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, consider Jesus. He's saying, put our focus on Jesus. And he said, therefore, meaning he's referring to what he's been talking about in the previous two chapters, which is Jesus is our Savior. He's our substitute. He's the author of our salvation. He's the one who sanctifies us and makes us holy. He conquered Satan, and we studied how he even intercedes for us. So he's saying, therefore, because of all that, he's saying, consider Jesus. Put our focus on Jesus. Put our mind and our heart on Jesus And understand what He has done for us and what His will is for each of us. I'm going to show you a number of verses here. We're going to just kind of camp out here for just a second. There's so much richness in this first verse. I'm going to take you over to Ephesians 1. I'll just go over there real quick. I won't be over there long. Ephesians 1, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So we studied this in depth when we were in Ephesians, but there's so much there. This is what Jesus has done for us. And I know that text that I just read talks a lot about predestination, and we've spent a lot of time on that in the past. So I'm not going to spend time there. I'll just say this, that... There's plenty of verses in the Bible that talk about predestination. And there's also verses that say, whosoever will may come. So there's tension there. And if anybody tells you they can explain that to you, I'd run from them because it's a mystery. I don't think we're going to totally understand that until we get to heaven. But there's a tension there. Yes, it's by God's grace. But at the same time, we have to receive the gift. We do have to receive it, but I won't give any credit to I won't even put 1% saying that was my effort because it's all God's grace. We're also told to go preach the gospel and that's the way others place their faith in Jesus, they got to hear and so there's a will part of it and I can't totally explain that to you. I'll just going to leave it there, but we should be so thankful when you read all that because of Jesus what he's given us through his work on the cross. And I'll stay in Ephesians, and I'll just go over to chapter 2. And I'm not going to read 8 and 9 like I normally do. I'm going to start a little before that. Listen to this. I'm in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it's an accomplished thing. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, it's a done deal. Verse 7, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I always refer to 8-9. I'll just read it one more time, just so you know. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So we have nothing to contribute to it other than receiving the gift and having a need for a Savior to save us. But that's what Christ has done. Let's go back over to our text for today, Hebrews 3. That's why he's saying, Therefore, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That is our confession. He's an apostle. That means he was sent with authority from God. John twelve 49, I'll go over there and read that to us. It says that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Jesus says himself in John twelve forty nine. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. So that was the authority that Jesus came with. He was the first apostle. He's the cornerstone. Christianity is a spiritual and heavenly calling. With that comes a spiritual and heavenly inheritance. Judaism was an earthly calling. It was a calling and their promise to eventually receive the land. But Christianity is a heavenly and spiritual calling. It's superior. I'll show you Philippians 3. Let me show you that one real quick. Philippians 3, verse 14, this is Paul speaking. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God and Christ Jesus. And I'll skip down to verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our calling. And Paul says to keep pressing on. And here the writer in Hebrews is saying, Consider Jesus. Don't lose sight of Jesus in our heavenly calling. He says that's the basis of our confession, he calls it. So we should worship God now, not with earthly rituals and ceremonies and legalistic works trying to earn our way and earn our salvation and earn our way to God. That's not going to get us there. That's what Judaism, that was the failure of the law. We couldn't keep the law. Now we have grace. So keep our eyes on Jesus. Okay, so now we're going to go into this section beginning here in verse 2 where the writer is going to start comparing Jesus to Moses. And he's going to say Jesus is so superior to Moses in both his person and his position. Remember, the first covenant came to the Jews through Moses. And as I said, Moses is highly, highly, highly esteemed by the Jews above every other Jew who ever lived. God protected Moses as a baby, you remember, and personally provided for his burial when he died. Moses brought the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, from God to the rest of the Israelites. He also wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. He's an important guy. He led the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery. Yet, we're going to see in this passage, the writer's going to say, yeah, Moses was faithful, great guy, great guy great servant of God, but Jesus is better. So let's read on. Verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him, talking about Jesus, as Moses also was in all his house. So Moses was faithful to God, and so was Christ. Christ was faithful, this is saying. They both were. But Moses was given authority by God. He was even a higher priest than Aaron, which was what the line of priests came from, But God spoke to Moses. He spoke directly to Moses. And where you see this in all his house, this word that's translated as house means household. You can think of it as household or tribe. But what this is really talking about is God's kingdom. We're going to see. In fact, in my translation, which I've told you before, I'm using the New American Standard. It always capitalizes pronouns for God, and it's a capital H for his house here. Verse 3, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Again, talking about Christ. And Jesus' household is the church. He's saying while they were both faithful, Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So the house, which is the kingdom of God, it's God's house. Jesus is superior, he's saying, because Jesus built the house. Okay, let's read on. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So Jesus is God. He made all things. He built the house. John, we looked at this, I think, a couple of lessons ago. John chapter 1, verse 3 makes it very clear that Jesus made all things. It says, All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus made everything. He made the house. So he's superior. Look in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. So Moses was a servant, and you see this, he was a servant in the house. Okay? So Moses was a servant in God's house. And for what purpose? For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. So, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He spoke to Moses so he could speak to the Israelites. But Judaism never fully understood God's plan to redeem man. Judaism without Jesus Christ, the Old Testament without the New Testament, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. It will not save you. We'll see this eventually. I'm just going to flip over real quick to Hebrews 10. We'll get over there eventually. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. So the Old Testament sacrifices, they were imperfect. They wouldn't get you there. It provided a temporary forgiveness, but it was incomplete. Okay, I'm going back over to the text. So we see in verse 5, Moses was a servant in the house, in God's house. You see that? Now, compare Christ, verse 6. But Christ was faithful. So verse 5 says, Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house. 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. You see that? So Christ is superior. He's the king. He made the house, He built the house. He is God. And he is a son. He's son of God over his own house. And it says whose house we are. So Jesus' house, again, we've looked at this. It's not a building. People still get confused. You know, I'm going to the house of God when they are talking about going to church. No, the church is not the house of God. As Christians, the house of God is us. We are the temple of God. When we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in us, and we are God's temple. We are the house of God. Let me show you, because people get that really confused. I'm going to go show you Ephesians 2, 19 real quick, which says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, meaning all believers. Whenever Paul uses the word saints, he's talking about all believers. All believers and are of God's household. You see that? So we are fellow citizens, and we are in God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. He's describing the body of Christ. Verse 22, In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit so the Holy Spirit lives in each of us as believers we are the body of Christ Jesus manifested himself through his human body when he was here on earth and then after he died and was buried and ascended back to heaven to the right hand of God he then sent the Holy Spirit to live in us and now he manifests himself here on earth through believers he manifests himself to others through us, through the working of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Let me show you one other verse. We were just there. That's where we were before. First Timothy 3.15. We talked about that when we were over there. First Timothy 3.15. This is Paul talking. He says, But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself. Where? In the household of God. Is that the building? No which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So, remember I read the verse, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They're gone. They laid the foundation. They're not here anymore. We've got the scripture. And now the church is being built on that foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Remember what a cornerstone is. That's the first stone that's laid. And if that's not perfect... The rest of the building is going to be messed up. So the church is built on the foundation of the prophets with the cornerstone being Jesus Christ himself. Okay? Any questions about that? So it says, but Christ was faithful. I'm back over on the text, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. A lot of people take this. To say, and it's incorrect reading here, that says that we've got to do something. We've got to strive to hang on to our faith. We've got to go to a priest and keep getting grace imparted to us. We've got to hang on. We've got to work towards holding on to our faith. That's the only way we'll be saved. That's not what that is saying at all. This is talking about several things. First of all, this is talking about people who aren't real true believers. They only give mental assent. They don't have saving faith. And so they can fall away. And we're going to read a little bit more about this in a minute. But usually at this point, take you over to the parable in Matthew 13 of the sower in the soils. I'm going to take you today to Luke 8, which is the same teaching, but a little different just so you see it somewhere else as well. I'm in Luke 8, verse 13. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And bring no fruit to maturity. So, this parable, as we've studied many, many times, it provides the four responses to the gospel. The first one, they reject it out of hand. Those are people who don't want to hear it from the very beginning. The next two are people who sort of want to go along with the flow, they don't really put their heart into it. I like to call it infatuation. It kind of seems like the cool thing to do at the time, but it's not saving faith. It's an infatuation. This is what this is describing. This is people who it's kind of cool. It's the neat thing to do. Maybe their friends are doing it. But then one of two things happens either a difficulty comes, they lose a spouse, they lose a child. And we've seen these people. They say, I don't want any part of God. If that's what God's all about, I'm out. I'm out of here. They never had true saving faith. Or life comes along and things are great and they got money and material thing they say man I'm good I don't need Jesus so they fall away they never had true saving faith let's go back over to the text this could be talking about those types of people or at least warning don't be that kind of person make sure you're all in for Jesus make sure you have saving faith it's not just sort of mental assent that it's not true saving faith But this is also telling us as believers, and I use Matthew 13 with people all the time who maybe lost a spouse or lost a child, as they're grieving. I even say, do you feel closer now to Jesus than you did before this even happened? And they go, absolutely. And I said, you should rejoice because that is evidence that you have true saving faith. You didn't fall away. You weren't one of these other two soils. In fact, your faith has grown through the process. And that's evidence of true saving faith. And that's what holding fast, perseverance in the faith, is actually the mark of true saving faith, in that you have been saved. Faith that isn't tested isn't really faith at all. Let me show you a couple of verses that show that true believers are strengthened through trials. Let me first take you over to James 1. And i begin in verse 2. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials strengthen us. God uses our trials to knock off our rough edges and make us more Christ-like and strengthen our faith and strengthen our relationship with God and then i'll show you one other one first peter 5 verse 10 and after you've suffered for a little the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you so god uses these trials and difficulties that we go through to help strengthen us and prove out our faith It should be encouraging to us when we come through on the other side to see how much we've grown in our relationship and trust in God when we go through trials. That's what he's talking about. And the ones who fall away, 1 John actually talks about that, 1 John 2.19. Let me read that verse, which basically says people who fall away, they really weren't true believers to begin with. I'm in 1 John 2.19. It says, they went out from us, meaning they left us. But they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. They didn't have true saving faith. So now what we're going to see is the writer here, he is warning of the danger of disbelief, what can happen. We're going to see as he goes on, he's going to use the illustration of Moses with the first generation of Israelites that he led out of Egypt to warn against the danger of hearing God's message, but then not believing and not committing to Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God really does want everyone to be saved. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So that's why we're left here. God is very patient. He sees all the sin. He sees the craziness that's going on in our country right now. And yet he's patient. He sees all this sin, but he still is holding out his hand and saying, please come. And he wants to use us to try to bring people to faith in this crazy world that we're in. Just to refresh your memory on the history of Israel, remember the Israelites had been in Egypt about 400 years The last 200 or so years before they left, they were slaves because the Egyptians viewed them as a threat. They had grown in their numbers. There were so many of them in Egypt, and so the Egyptians put them into slavery. They were oppressed, and then God used Moses to get Pharaoh to let them go. Pharaoh didn't want to let them go at first, and there were ten plagues. You remember the last plague, all the firstborn males were killed. And that really got Pharaoh's attention, so he permitted them to leave, but then he chased after them, and God parted the Red Sea and led them around through the wilderness with a cloud and a fire at night. And the Israelites, they complained and complained, and even then when they got to the land, you remember they got to the promised land, and they were worried about going in, and so there were 12 tribes of Israel. They each selected one representative of each of the 12 tribes to go in and spy out the land. And they go in and they spy out the land and they come back. And 10 of the tribes, the 10 of the leaders that went in said, Oh no, we can't go in. These are huge people. It's terrible. We're not going to live. We ought to go back. We were better off as slaves in Egypt. You know, let's go back. Two of the tribes, two of the leaders joshua and caleb said no 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 god promised us the land it's going to be fine we got to trust god we ought to go in they take a vote they said we're not going in so what did god do make them march around in the wilderness for 40 years to kill off that generation of unbelievers and then the second generation is who went in and joshua and caleb were the only two that were allowed to go in from the first generation in fact even moses didn't make it in Because remember, he hit the rock and disobeyed what God said. He was so angry at the Israelites from complaining all the time. He beat on the rock to get water out of it, and that's not what God told him to do. And so God didn't even let Moses go in, but God did bury Moses. Anyway, that's what we're going to read, okay? So now, the writer is going to use that as an illustration. He says in verse 7 Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, remember, the Holy Spirit is the author of the scripture. And this is out of Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. This is saying the longer you say no to Jesus, each time your heart gets harder and harder and harder. It's kind of like scar tissue. And then eventually, at some point, it's going to be too late. Your heart will be so hardened, you can't ever get there. So, this is a call to worship and committing to Jesus, believing in Jesus, obeying what is written in the Bible. And he's using Israel's disobedience and rejection of God during the Exodus from Egypt as an example of what happens when you don't. Verse 9, he's saying, Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. So, even though God was providing for them. They kept demanding more and more miracles. They didn't like what they had to eat. They wanted more water. They kept saying, just do it one more time, and then we'll believe. They were complaining all the time, but they were really in disbelief about what God had planned for them. And the writer here is saying, don't be like the Israelites. They saw God's power. God kept protecting them, and yet they didn't believe, and they wouldn't even go into the land that he had promised for them. So God led them around in the wilderness for another 40 years. Verse 10, it says, Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. So God was really angry with their sin and their rejection of him, even though they had seen God provide for them, part the Red Sea. It says right here, they never knew his ways. It's terrible. Verse 11, As I swore in my wrath... They shall not enter my rest. Let me talk about rest, because we're going to see this word rest used throughout our reading and study of the rest of Hebrews, and it can mean various things. It can mean the Canaan rest, meaning the land, taking the promised land. They were going to have rest once they got there, into the promised land. Sometimes it's referring to that. Sometimes it may refer to the Sabbath rest, meaning rest on the seventh day, Sometimes it can be God's promised rest of the kingdom meaning salvation that will have rest in heaven. And then sometimes it's referring to rest on earth that when we believe and place our faith in Jesus Christ, he says place all our burdens on him. He will make our burdens light. Let me show you that Matthew 11:28. I'll go over there real quick. This is a earthly type of rest. This is Jesus talking this is Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. This isn't a prosperity gospel. This isn't saying that believe in Jesus and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Because he makes it clear in so many other passages that we're going to go through lots of difficulties. But what this is saying is when you trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is living in you, you will have protection. Trust in him. He won't put you through anything that you can't get through. You have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. And he will bless you. There will be blessings. There will be protection provided by Jesus. It also means that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you receive the free gift of the forgiveness of sins by his grace, that now you're freed from all this striving and trying to do all this religious stuff and trying to earn your way and earn your salvation by working hard and doing religious things and sacraments and trying to earn it, which is impossible. You can find peace in Jesus because of the grace that he's extended to us. That is true rest. And then it's the Holy Spirit working in and through us that does the good works. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. And that's evidence of our faith. Our good works bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit working in and through us. That's rest. It's not us. So we'll see as we go along, it will be referring to those types of rest. Verse 12, Take care, brethren lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. He's really speaking to two groups. He's talking to believers. You know, even us as believers, from time to time, we've seen believers fall away temporarily. You know, they might fall off a little bit, like the prodigal son. You know, even when the prodigal son left, he was still a son. He left for a little while, went and lived his life crazily, but he came back and he was still a son, and the father celebrated his return. But he was still a son even when he was gone, okay? So that's why I believe once saved, always saved. At the same time, while he says brethren, I think he's primarily talking to believers in the danger of falling away even temporarily because when you do, you're going to suffer consequences, But he's also talking about people who never had saving faith to begin with, the danger of that, and that you will never be able to enter into heavenly rest, salvation. You see this unbelieving heart. Unbelief, that is the greatest sin. That is the greatest sin, having unbelief. The word apostasy, you'll hear that word used sometimes, and that actually means conscious walking away from God. It's like, you've heard it, but you're walking away from it. It's not for you. The word actually means to stand away. It means, I don't want to be in that camp. I'm not with God. It's renouncing God, basically. Verse 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called the day. So it's saying, help each other, encourage people. While there's still time to place your faith in Jesus Christ, we should all be encouraging one another. He says, today, the present time, you have an opportunity. Today, you have the chance. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. There's lots of people that think, I talk to these people all the time. They think that they do enough good things. They give to charity. Maybe even they go to church from time to time. They think they're doing good enough things that is going to get them to heaven. And there's no basis for that. We just looked at Ephesians chapter 2 earlier. Good works aren't going to get you there. That will not get you there it's placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation recognizing that you are a sinner and you can't get right with God without Jesus without him paying your debt and you've got nothing to contribute to it Larry on that verse 12 see to it brothers that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart and when I first read that I went, you know uh oh but it's a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from God I know that when I experience my sinful nature, I don't feel myself turning away from God, but I feel the conviction. Well, you're feeling conviction, and the reason you're feeling conviction is because the Holy Spirit is convicting you. And the reason you're being convicted is because when you sin, you are actually rebelling against God. When you sin, you are saying, I'm doing it my way, I'm not doing it your way. That's what sin is. It is rebellion against God. And so it is. It's, it's turning your back on God for that, whatever sin you're in, whatever it is. You are rebelling. You are not allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through you the way the Holy Spirit wants to work in you. And that's why you feel conviction. But what happens is the more you do that, the more you rebel, what can happen to people is your heart gets hardened And eventually, you don't even see that as a sin anymore. I mean, there's all kinds of people out there that are running around doing all kinds of things. Well, just think of our culture. This one came in my head. Think of how many people are living together and not married. And never, ever think of that as a sin. And their parents, who may be great Christians, allow their kids to do it, and they don't bat an eye about it. They don't even view it as a sin anymore. Their hearts have been hardened. They're all sins and it says in the Bible, guilty of one, guilty of all. Right. Yeah, it's all rebellion against God. Yeah. Okay, man, I got to get going here. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So as I said, and I showed you 1 John 2:19. true believers will continue in faith. It says, verse 15, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me the writer here, he repeats the same warning. The unbelieving Israelites, they never got to see the promised land. That was their judgment. They had faith, at least enough faith to follow Moses out of Egypt, but they didn't trust God enough to get into the promised land, so they missed out. How many professed Christians don't trust Jesus alone for their salvation? you know, it's like they still want to hang on to maybe some of the traditions that have been handed down through their family or sacraments, you know, that they feel like they need to do this just to make sure that they're going to get into heaven. They're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And that's not the gospel. There's others who say, I'm not going to believe unless I see. And yet, we exercise faith every day i bet just about all of us came across a bridge somewhere on the way to meet today and did we get out and inspect the bridge and you know i wonder if this bridge has been put together right no we trust the government authorities of all people that they have put the bridge in and inspected it and when we go across it it ain't going to fall down we put our trust in that okay what about our trust in jesus christ alone Another good example. We just sit down and we hope the chair will hold us up. Verse 16, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Meaning they died out there. They did another lap for 40 years and died. Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So they never made it to the promised land. We don't know if they were all saved, if the Israelites had saving faith. They did show faith in following Moses out of Egypt. We aren't told explicitly in the Bible if that first generation actually had saving faith. We don't know. Jude 5 talks about it a little bit. There's no chapters in Jude, so it's just Jude verse 5. Jude writes, he says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. There was judgment because of their falling away, their disbelief. I don't know if they're in heaven or not. The Bible is not clear on that. Verse 19, and so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The writer here, he's saying, choose faithfulness now. There's no guarantee that you're going to have the opportunity later. Here's some verses on uh, perseverance in the faith. Go over and look at this. Go over to Romans. It's over to the left, Romans 8:28. Romans is, as you're going to the left, Romans 8:28. It'll be on the other side of Corinthians, between Acts and Corinthians. It says that, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In whom he predestined, these he also called. In whom he called, these he also justified. In whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So God's in control. You can see no one's lost. No one's left out. It's a done thing. There's no seepage. It's all God's doing, and it's all part of his plan. I'll also show you Philippians 1, 6, which I show you quite often because this is kind of my go-to verse. This provides me with a lot of hope. It says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the promise we have. He will complete the job. And then John ten I'll read that one to you too. John ten twenty seven says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So that's the assurance that we have. He's going to complete it. Even if we have a temporary backslide, we are not going to slip through Jesus' hand. That's what he promises us. And 2 Timothy 2.13, let me show you that one real quick. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So he's never going to fail in his promises to us, to keep us, and to bring us to salvation. Salvation is not by faith plus being faithful, because that, now you're adding works to it. It's by grace. It's faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. That's where we get our salvation. I'm sorry I went a little long. Let me wrap this up. How do we apply this? Jesus followed every command that he was given by God the Father. And so we're called to also follow Jesus' commands to us. And that will give us a very victorious life, even when we're going through trials. True believers will endure to the end. That's what we're told in the Bible. That's what saving faith is all about. We should thank Jesus for all that he's done for us. He deserves praise from us continually. We saw everything that he has done for us. No way we could pay that debt ourselves. We should encourage others to come to faith before their hearts are hardened so they can partake in Jesus's promises to us and they can enter into the rest that he promises. And finally, I'll ask, what is Jesus really calling you to do that you keep saying no to? Jesus has a plan for each and every one of us, and we're part of his plan. And he wants to build his kingdom, his household that we've been reading about today in and through us. So what is He asking each of you to do that you keep saying, I'm uncomfortable, or I don't have time, or it's inconvenient, or I don't feel like it? I ask you to really pray that the Holy Spirit put that on your heart and then give you the courage and the strength to carry out what He wants you to do. So what's on your mind? What other things jumped out at you in today's text?
1: Larry, talking about the rest and the different forms of rest or usage of the Word, to me the one that connotes peace, mm. that we have peace because we have our faith in Christ, our conviction in Christ, and he's not promising us just prosperity. not just promising us life without trials, but he's saying we should have peace because of our relationship with Christ no matter what trials come our way, no matter what bad luck. and We know God's going to bless us, And we know that all good things are blessings from God. All good things come from God. So not everything that is is good and comes from God. But we know that those things that are good, they came from God. That's what we need to be happy about. That's where we put our faith. That's the rest we get, regardless of rich or poor, health, sick, peace, eternity, rest.
0: Yeah, you can't have peace. All these other religions that teach of faith plus all this other stuff, that cannot bring peace. You can even ask the priests at these other religions, where are you going to go when you die? And they'll go, well, I hope heaven. That's not peace. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we have peace because we know where we're going. If you're asked, where are you going to go when you die? You ought to say, I absolutely 100% know I'm going to heaven. And they may say, well, gosh, that sounds kind of cocky. You think you've been that good? Absolutely not. It's not from anything I did. It's what Jesus did for me. I had nothing to do with it. That should be the answer. He tells us we shouldn't grieve like unbelievers do. We know where we're going. He says he's built a place for us. We're assured of that. So that should bring tremendous peace. When we're going through little trials and difficulties, realize that a lot of times God is just trying to knock off our rough edges by taking us through the fire You know how gold becomes gold? Pure, pure, pure gold. What do they do? They put it through lots of heat. And what do they do? Skim the dross off the top. and Put it through more heat. Skim the dross off. That's what God's doing to us. Putting us through some heat to knock off those rough edges, to make us where we depend on God and we trust Him even through our difficulties. And to make us more Christ-like. Do you know how the person who is refining the gold knows that they've skimmed off enough of the dross? When they look down on top of it and they see their reflection, then they know that it's pure gold. That's what God's doing. He's removing our dross until he can look down and see him through us. He's refining us. He's making us more Christ-like. Or he might be taking us through our difficulties. To show others the peace that we have, even in our trials, so that then they will want to ask us, where do you find that peace?
1: That's our witness. That's how we
0: reflect Christ That's our witness. In, our, in our world. Absolutely. That's good. What else? Anything else? The aha moment I had
1: was, you probably should have had this aha moment a long time ago, but how the Old Testament is so foundational you know a lot of people look at the old testament they read it and they read they it oh my gosh you know if they make it past leviticus they're doing really really good you know but it was all preparation for the new covenant correct and those dots are starting to connect in my head anyway a little
0: and it all points to christ yeah. the old testament when you study it it's all pointing to christ and the mosaic law it's good but The purpose of that was to point to Christ. It was to show there's no way you can keep it. There's no way. And so you need a Savior because you're a sinner. You can't live out your life according to God's standard. No way. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments,
1: you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.